Hey everybody, and welcome to Goat's Eye View, the one that I'm calling all creatures great and small, uh, where Andy, the benevolent dictator of Helpful Goat and the person above me in the frame, and I will be talking about uh, creatures in D&D 5e, how to use them, what are our favorites, what are the ones we don't like. Um, now I will very briefly do the Helpful Goat spiel, and then we can get into the Andy and I talking about creatures and different ways to get them to kill players, that content that you were expecting. Um, <laughs> we're Helpful Goat Gaming. We're a small independent game design uh, group. We like to build community. We like to both design games and show us doing live plays and actual plays. Um, we have podcasts, which you can see down below in the Twitch description. Uh, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Our Goats and Dragons feed is a level 1 to 20 long-form campaign. Um, uh, Helpful Goat Presents is a variety of shorter campaigns. But yeah, so before we get to community questions, uh, as we're talking about this, um, we wanted to talk about an issue that uh, has come up a bit, fair bit in D&D Twitter, um, and I know both Andy and I have some thoughts on that's essentially racism in creatures and NPCs within D and D. Um, so, Andy, did you want to start with sort of thoughts? I know you, I know you were sort of talking to me earlier, and you had some stuff bouncing around in there. In there, being your brain, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so yes. So, I, th- I think, I think I understand that there is a tradition of some creatures um and, and, and i think i think i'm just going to sort of make it as good or evil um in in people reacting to either good or evil creatures in in the game um i understand there's a tradition in D to sort of have that like oh all chromatic dragons are evil things and all metallic dragons are good and being you know i I get that tradition and I understand that sort of desire sometimes to latch on to kind of old ways of telling stories. I personally find that idea very, very limiting and honestly, somewhat troublesome, I guess. Um, I, I then sort of make it a point, I think in my campaign and I, and I think you do too, I, there, while there are certainly evil and, and good people in this in these worlds, you know I think that's very important even to to have in these things a uh, duality of good and evil. I don't think I just immediately make any creature automatically evil, if that makes sense. Part, partly because I, I I tend to find that as a little bit lazy storytelling because. The, the truest evil creatures in this world are going to be the ones that do evil, not that just are evil. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, yeah, always one of those and, lines of fantasy versus sci-fi. Sci-fi, traditionally, it was yeah. written that the evil people don't think they're evil. They usually think they're doing things for the right reasons, whereas in yeah. fantasy, you had a creature that called itself Sauron, the Dark Lord. It's like, <laughs> no one does that! Right. Like, yeah, like, uh, you know, Sauron's goal of sort of covering the world in a second darkness or something like that is, this doesn't make sense necessarily. I like, I, I you know, I, I get the sense of evil, but I want to know why. And, and the why of evil has to come from then the actions that these creatures do, not just simply what they are. Yeah. Um, 
traditionally, I tend to have gnolls be not very nice things. Um, but there, there are reasons that, you know, some gnolls just deviate from society and then <laughs> and lack a bunch of those things. You are, could easily come across a good gnoll, or I wouldn't put it past my players to be a gnoll who wants to be good or something like that. I, I never kind of make those hard distinctions with creatures. And I think that's then kind of where a lot of that racism in something like D&D comes from, of the, the sort of traditional idea that orcs are always bad or goblins are always bad, evil things that you should always kill on sight and never talk to because they're evil ways. I find that boring a lot, personally. Just, again, I'm only talking about my own sort of personal play style. I tend to find that boring and ultimately just kind of problematic. That I don't, I don't think things are inherently good or bad simply because of what they are a lot of times. Yeah, and I think that I would agree. I think that I would break... I, I by and large, agree with everything that you just said. I think the other thing I would break out is that it, when discussing racism in D anD D, sometimes there's also a, a layering effect that makes it even harder, such as the fact that D anD D largely draws from the work of the high fantasy world, which was largely built out of Tolkien. If you read his journals, Tolkien had some real racist reasons for how the orcs, what the orcs were. Like seriously, go read it. It's real bad. It's real bad. <laughs> and I think that that is where it then gets doubly problematic when you have source material that's like, yes, these people, and even even if we ignore the incredibly racist things that he said about orcs in his journals, just reading what was said in those books makes it clear really racist ideas. Orcs are a bad, corrupted version of elves who are good. And it's like, okay, uh, that's incredibly essentialist. That's incredibly problematic. You've, you've just sort of built this problem of, okay, this is they're just bad. They are inherently lesser. Um, I think that that was actually one of the things that I I enjoyed, for example, just using an example. Uh, there, and again, with Goat's Eye View, there's always a chance of some spoilers from all of our campaigns because we try to draw examples sure. from stuff. Um, but from Fates of Rin, relatively early on in the caravan, the Orcish family in that were probably the general in general morality like the best people we came across in a lot yeah, of ways yeah. like they had kind of their own culture they had kind of their own thing but they were super they were the only ones who were like yeah we should fucking defend the caravan why the hell aren't you people doing this we should you know yeah we'll contribute to this we'll and it's like that's the kind of thing that i like to see and i think that that's a thing you do really beautifully it's a thing that i try to do and then the other part of it, and more what you were discussing, the thing that I find really problematic with saying evil races, evil creatures in this game is yeah. it is so problematic because it has become this tightly knit conflation of someone's race slash actually species within the D&D &D world with who they are as people and kind of then sort of kind of tries to like bow to culture 
but also explicitly undercuts that because it's like, yeah, dwarvish societies are normally very lawful and orderly. It's like, okay, that makes sense. In Forgotten Realms, dwarves have this society, and so it sort of produces probably more of these characters than others, but you could always have exceptions. That makes sense. But it always, to me, comes back to tieflings. They're like, tieflings are too chaotic to have societies, but all tieflings are this way. I'm like, why? (laughs) How? Like, as a sociologist, this hurts me. Um... And so you're saying it, it conflates the idea of like culture and race. Yeah, it basically kind of into a thing. Yeah, it kind of is like, look, we're gonna go with trying to do an alignment system, which uh, I already have problems with. I find it really funny that Monty is missing, though they, they did submit questions for this. They're missing this particular one where I go off on one of the systems that they also most hate. But there's this idea of like I'm okay with an idea of there's a cultural alignment generally. Maybe it's you know lawful to chaotic, even good to evil. Though I find that a little weird, but that makes sense. But it doesn't then scan for me to be like, oh, this person born in this entirely other place, raised alone outside of this context. No, they're still a tiefling, so they're going to be chaotic. It's like why. Shouldn't a tiefling raised by a family of dwarves be more likely to end up dwarf-like? Um, and it's kind of funny because I feel like the rule books are actually behind some of their own writings, like um, Salvatore's books, the Icewind Dale trilogy, where you have a, a barbarian human thinks he's a dwarf and acts like a dwarf. He's just a really fucking tall dwarf. And I loved that. I loved that when I was a kid. So, uh, all of this is to say, I think, as a lead-in and as a preamble to all of the things that we're going to answer about creatures generally, um, don't be afraid to challenge the system a little bit. If you see something that's problematic, take it out. Take it apart. It's, it's easy. It's not going to harm the mechanics. Switching its alignment isn't going to make its claw attack do more or less damage. Making it not be an <laughs> asshole... Because it just happens to be an orc or a knoll or a kobold or whatever isn't going to be the problem. It's not going to add anything bad to your games, and it'll probably add a lot of joy to it. Um, because yeah, it's 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 just it's so problematic and frustrating. And I still I still go back to in that that conversation of good and evil forces within Dungeons and Dragons and within a game like in tier beyond the doors where at some point you're like, is there no one unambiguously evil in this town to murder? And I'm like, yes, fine. I will go get you the, I will go get you the unambiguously evil people who were guards yeah. and corrupt ones at that. So that's my issue. Who are also racist. Wow. I really checked all the boxes with that one. Yeah. Um, but so, we're going to move, I think, into some of the questions that people have submitted from the community. If you have questions in um, here, feel free to place questions in the chat. Maybe start it with the word question in all caps. Um, I see that there have been a few. Whole discussion of cultural relativism. Are gnolls doing bad things, or are they just doing things that humans think are bad? Which is actually really fascinating. And one of those things that uh, sentience is kind of this weird difficult line in D&D and like what it means to be a creature 
Right. right. No, and, and this problem of like good and evil within creatures is really interesting when you start to get into yeah, the like sentience or like like I man, like it could an owlbear be evil. You know, like I too cute, I too precious. Yeah, right. Well, too cute. Besides the cute factor, which I think we'll also talk about tonight. Like, I don't know if a creature even has sometimes the capability to be really, really bad or good in ways that that not only our player characters understand, but the players even kind of understand. Yeah. Like, there are sometimes, yes, when you, you know, you have a wolf attacking and you need to defend yourself. Yes. I don't think that wolf was necessarily being evil. And therefore, in my games, you can turn it. If you'd feed it, <laughs> then you have a friend wolf all of a sudden. Are you, you referring know? to it's... Mr. Wolf? A very, very good boy. <laughs> very good boy in that campaign, yeah. Uh, that's, right, that's right, because you guys saved that wolf, didn't you? And, like... We let, we let most of the wolves go and fed the yeah. people that had captured them to them. <laughs> right. And then that one particular wolf was, I think, either more like more restrained or like more tied up or was injured or something so that he couldn't he get away. Yeah. And yeah. then he was still around. And then Mr. Fluff was like, you are friend now. Yeah. Yeah. And I made a role of course for animal handling a few times, but twice. Well, you eventually made a friend out of you know, that creature. Yeah. Sentience is a really interesting issue yeah. I think, with a lot of the creatures in in the games and it's kind of interesting because sometimes there are there are sort of blurred distinctions and here i'm here i'm diving by the way this is dnd 5e and we are going to be diving straight into probably specific creatures but like there is an interesting line from as they are portrayed i would say and i also one thing i would also always say if you are dming a game and it's especially if it's not like a preset campaign it's your world or you're spinning it feel free to change anything about creatures do you want mind flayers to be noble protectors of the multiverse? Great, cool, fine. It's it's absolutely fine. That's pretty damn cool, actually. But so so sometimes I am referring to sort of as default written in the monster manual in Wizards of the Coast material, but sort of as it's as it's written there, it's like, yeah, okay, I think you can make a pretty solid case where mind flayers are evil. They enslave races, they view most races as lesser, only fit to serve as food. Um, they intentionally weaken other races in sort of ways to make this uh, more pr- productive. Yes, there is an entire conversation to be had here about farming. I'm not going to have it right now. It just doesn't know. Um, <laughs> but then you compare it to something which is painted with a very similar brush and given the same alignment as an intellect devourer. It's a little brain on legs. That has a that can only eat brains, and so it hunts people and eats their brains. And the mind flayers use it and use it as a tool. But then there's a real question of: Is an intellect devourer evil? Is a wolf evil for eating meat? Well, all an intellect devourer can eat is a brain. That's interesting. The okay, so the monster manual. Uh, it says intellect devourer is lawful evil uh, with an intelligence of twelve. Okay, so it is. I've, uh, but it's 
Right. It's they're they're. I've never really thought of them as I've always thought of them as more beast like creatures, never things that sort of have their own. Yeah, like they're just according to the book, they're just basically foul aberrations of the mind flayers, their masters. There's yeah, there's no and like there's a very clear context that's applied there of like they don't really have free will. They carry out the the mind flayers. So I guess free will starts at intelligence (laughs) thirteen. And until then seven uh, seven attribute points after speech. (laughs) Um sorry, Stormbringer. I think you're below (laughs) twelve intelligence. I Okay, if it's 12 or below, and we're saying that sentient starts there, I'm not sure. I think Charity might be the only sentient one in the party. (laughs) Free will creature in the family. Um, But that's interesting. That's fascinating. And again, it's it's something that, that, again, you have to kind of, as a DM, I think, find your own creatures and monsters but but try to think of them as their own characters right it, and and if the character that you're using the monster for is more like a dog to another creature then it, yes you can play them like that and, and make them sort of act like that i don't you know the, the guidelines that are in the rules especially for creatures I think are incredibly bendable to yeah. to your will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's uh, jump into some of the questions that people in the community posted. <laughs> so Monty had asked uh, as the basic, and I thought it was kind of a good warm up question. I guess we started with a warm up question of uh, racism with D and D creatures. We didn't start with the easy one. Um, <laughs> what are your favorite and least favorite creatures, Andy? What are you thinking? This is good. Um, yeah, so I was I was thinking about this. Um, I I tend to really enjoy. I think the because again I, I see creatures as characters in a lot of ways, and I really enjoy when something seems purely bad and evil and turns out to be maybe not so much that um a little bit of a spoiler for fates of ren the dragon could have been just seen as evil if you didn't really get into the backstory of that character if you didn't get into you know there there are certainly ways where that story that character's story just ends and it ends probably in a fight with the family and so therefore it's probably evil but I love it that then that creature sort of evolved into something much more interesting and much more useful for the story rather than just a thing to throw in front of people. Yeah. Um, so so the, for me, that's what I'm kind of going for when I'm thinking of personal creatures that can do something like that. Um, and because of that, dragons are incredibly fascinating creatures in, in, in that instance. I... I like to play the dragons in my campaigns as as they're not good or evil. They just have a different morality <laughs> than than mortal things that are not dragons. Yeah. And 
and that may come across as violent or it may come across as as scary or something um but it's they're fascinating beings and they're also very very rare in my campaigns i don't have dragons just everywhere necessarily um uh so whenever they come up i i i am very very purposeful with them in creating their characters um so man yeah they're they're and, and their abilities are really fun to play, and they can polymorph into things, and you know, for the most part, they can look like whatever they want. It's they're just so much fun. Um, but the, that's also, I understand that's also kind of a pat answer for Dungeons and Dragons. The dragons are the coolest creatures. Um, personally, if I had to pick then something non-dragon, I have the most fun with Rakshasas. <laughs> And I've loved them forever. Yeah, and they're just beautiful. And one has been hunting Galway. Not Galway's characters, basically Galway. Yes. They <laughs> meta hunt me. <laughs> For those of you who are caught up to the Rakshasa that is in Fates of Rin, Lucian would be the name of my first D&D character in 5e. Yep. It's hunting me. It's Andy hunting me. If ever Andy makes a joke of this is a game where I where I get try to kill my friends, that's the closest where that almost becomes true. The Rakshasas are not trying to kill the party. It's me. I have so far killed them as three separate characters. Ricky backward hands. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my answer to that one. Anything on least favorite? Oh, least favorite. Um, I yes, Rachel. You um, know Andy is a tiger I... demon. Yeah, I love that. One. Yeah, his hands um, are always backwards. I, see, because I I almost find it as a personal challenge. If I don't necessarily like a mm-hmm. creature, I try to find a way that. I can use them as something really, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I just don't have creatures I don't like as much. There's some that I think look goofy and I don't want to use. Like it's it's hard to be have a serious <laughs> campaign and use a flump. I was gonna say, but, if you're about to say something bad about flumps, which are fucking adorable. They are adorable. They're, they're also supposed adorable. to be friendly. Yeah, and, and friendly and just kind of goofy looking. <laughs> I don't, but hey, that's as bad as it gets for me. I'm sure I could find a use for a floomph. Yeah, I think uh, answering that one, and it was interesting because I wanted to just sort of let you go and see where you fell on this because um, I feel like my mind is almost, can be a little bit split as just like an aficionado of D&D versus a player versus uh, a DM. Um, But kind of trying to narrow that or like triangulate between all three of those and i've given this answer i'm pretty sure before um th- yeah i know they're amazing looking um i think they're probably my favorite creature and a lot for a lot of similar reasons that you're talking about i love the storytelling potential i love the way that you can make them a real character and i love the way that you can make them um a character that interacts with the party in a way that they want to not the way that the party wants to uh, plus, yeah. they are uh, my favorite class of creature, uh, an aberration, um, beholders. Mm, um, yeah. I love the potential for beholders of, uh, to me, they have some of the best written fiction within Wizards of the Coast books. 
These are hyper-intelligent creatures that have literally thought of every way that you could ambush them and prepare to countermeasure for it. I love the example of, like, you're going to uh, burst in through the ceiling on a dinosaur with lasers on its head. The beholder thought of it. It has a countermeasure. You might overcome it, but it thought of it. I love that more beholders get made when beholders have paranoid dreams about other beholders. Um, like there's just this entire amazing fantasy around them. I also think they're just really, they're really fun. They're really interesting. Um, they're also like fucking iconic, which helps. Like, again, it's a little bit of a cheat answer, kind of like a dragon, like, it's, it's the iconic adds to the epicness. It's probably one of like the top five most iconic creatures in D and D. Um, I'm not going less iconic, but going less on like the sort of god tier power scale. I would also say I enjoy a good mimic. Um, as much as I don't use them a whole lot, uh, one of my favorite memories in a campaign was um, I think I know Andy with a monk punching a mimic that was still disguised, so it was sticky, and then punching it again, and then just like being stuck to this door. Did you bite it? I tried to, yeah. Yeah. I think I accidentally ran into it because I went to listen at the door because that was the campaign. We didn't have thieves tools. (laughs) Yeah. So we're like, maybe we break down the door. Maybe I listen. And then I just get stuck trying to do all that. (laughs) It didn't go well. Yeah. No, that that was a lot of fun. So that's that's a little bit of a lower tier. I'm just a... Do as a quick follow-up question, uh, Corey in the chat. As a DM, how do you play a beholder properly? Again, I don't try to emphasize any particular proper. I try to sketch out what I want that beholder to be. But the personality traits that I really love about them is that they are super intelligent. And they're the schemers. They're the plotters. They want to... They've got all of these plans. And I've usually... I actually never got to play one of the beholders that I was going to. Uh, It was for a campaign that... Stopped right before the people got to the beholder. Um, But he was just... He thought his jokes were the greatest things in the world. And also, because he had learned that all other creatures were so much less intelligent, he would say a joke and then immediately explain it. Like, that was his take. It didn't matter how simple the joke was. He was like, all right, all right. So you see, I have lots of eyes. So when I say I'm keeping my eye on you, it's a pun because there's so many of them. And also they have magical abilities. It was just that way of like, no, this is actually an absolutely fucking terrifying, brilliant mastermind who will vaporize you. But also has tells really bad dad jokes and thinks he has to explain them. <laughs> um so it's just just that I like the aberration being the the sheer weirdness of it. Um my least favorite monster uh kind of actually again for both DM and playing uh which is a little weird given that beholders have an anti-magic cone with their eye. Um I don't like creatures either if I'm playing or if I'm DMing that just make the party worse at things. Um especially if it's entire denial of a sort of skill set uh like oh they're just a hard counter to casters you don't get to cast oh they are unassailable by marshals blah blah blah. it's like well okay do i have a marshal in my party that's probably not a real fun fight for them unless i design it very carefully um so i kind of shy away from using those or just using a lot of um 
creatures that have a ton of crowd controlling abilities. Like I, I'm pretty sparing with my spiders because if they're not going to web, why spider? But being stuck in a web, not the most fun thing in the world. Ask Elif about that. Um, <laughs> so I think that's kind of where my answer would be. It's it's not a specific creature. Um, and I also really, really enjoy in a favorite, similarly to Andy, uh, not so much ones that I don't like as my challenge, but I like taking the ones that are viewed as very simple or sort of very cliche or like the equivalent of like, oh, kobolds. Kobolds are your level one. You're going to murder them. Um, I, I, I like creating the idea of uh, kobolds can murder the hell out of you. They're smart, they're well-organized, they're builders, they make traps. Like, you can punish a party with kobolds, and that's a fun challenge to me. Uh, kind of linked to that last favorite, what's the most frustrating encounter you have had with a creature in 5e? I'll let you ponder that one, because I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, frustrating. Th- this creature was a humanoid, was a goddamn monk, and it goes to my thing of not liking that... Uh, it was a monk and I was playing a character who was oh, archer. Yeah. I was an archer, but it wasn't even that I was, I also had yeah. melee capabilities. I was just stun locked. Like every round it was a stunning strike. And again, it was totally balanced. It was totally fair. It, Andy was the DM and like, it didn't, I didn't feel like, God damn it. Why is this happening? But it was just like, oh. another failed save. Good, good, good. I am. I look forward to my next round. Oh, look, he punched me. <laughs> another failed save good i look forward to my next round kill me now um and it made total sense in the story and it was a and i also want to say it was a really well designed encounter it was profoundly frustrating i'm just like i'm here i'm here i'm here yeah on the other hand he was punching me instead of any of the casters yeah yeah i yeah i remember yeah something very similar that that kind of happened to me early very very early on in my dungeon and dragons career i was playing with like a my one of my brothers they were a dm and it was a it was a solo campaign it was just me as an adventurer and i was like a fighter it was like one of my first characters um and there was a pretty badass flying creature in a really tall room and after the two javelins I had on my back, I just couldn't do anything. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, and, you know, I, I remember even trying to go like, oh, is there a chandelier or anything? <laughs> like, no. Are there any steps anywhere? No, it's just a tall stone room. I'm going to try to climb up the stone. Like, okay, man, well, it kills you if you do that. <laughs> nah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and that was really hard because it was a solo game. It's not even that I couldn't rely on my archer friend to like be like, "Hey, this is your fight now. I'm going to be here for protection for you. This is your thing." It, it was even just 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 me. Um, so yeah, so that that kind of thing can get really frustrating uh, if it's if stuff is re- meant to shut down most of a party or or not kind of highlight an individual or didn't you know doesn't go through phases of things that change it in that way or even just like i think probably now if i were dming that encounter i would make the creature stupidly probably go in for some fighting every once in a while just to make it something or give a point of interest in the room like i think that there would have been more oh reward the 
can I climb the walls? Yes. Or yeah. if yeah, it's yeah. like, I think both you and I like, okay, the, they have two javelins. This person has two javelins. Give them a note. The stonework is crumbling. Like, yeah, yeah, you could make an attack against the ceiling or something like that. Maybe you bring it down, damage its wing, you know. Like, yeah, there's always ways to make it interesting. It's just when you get that hard, nope, here's a wall. <laughs> yeah, which is also why I don't love putting Counterspell on with my casters. Yeah. It, because Counterspell is awesome and fun when the party uses it. It's hateful and to when shit when the NPC uses it. Against the party, it, it just brings everything down because spell slots can be so few and far between sometimes. Um, and, and it's sometimes sometimes not fair because I know the spell slots of all my party yeah. members. And if I know, like, yeah, that's their level two, I'm just going to wait for their level three <laughs> before I counter spell. That's that's hard, and that's really sometimes really difficult to play, and can be very frustrating for for players. And you know, if it's frustrating for players, it's not as much fun for DMs. Then, so yeah, I tend to not try to do that too much. Um, as, as much as I don't think we're going to hit this question for Monty, I, I didn't actually include it in the list, but Monty asked for sort of general DMing tips, because um, they're starting to get DMing. They're starting to DM a little bit more. That's one rule that I always follow with counterspell if i have it on a creature one i tend to use it sparingly and two if i'm going to use it i always determine a rule in my head of like the next time that person casts a spell because you just hit me with lightning bolt the next time you cast a spell this is like no no fuck stop that stop that stop that i don't care if it was eldritch blast i don't care if it was mending all that creature knows is I don't want to get hit with a lightning bolt again. So yeah. stop that. Um, and I think that that's just a much better way of dealing with that. Uh, and you need to do something like that because the players right. don't ask, get to know. <laughs> right. Even ask your DM, like, can I can I just tell you if I'm casting a spell? Just say, like, I cast a spell. And then give it a second for the counter spell. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't come, here's what spell it is, or something yeah. like that. Um, and you can kind of I, do that cheat the other way of like, can I get a little bit of information? Maybe not the exact spell, but like, I see lightning crackling at his fingertips. Yeah, no, sure. Counter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like as soon because I don't think Charity has counter spell right now. Oh, does he? Oh, okay, because I know you 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 probably used it, and I just forgot, but. But Rarely. when we started to use counterspell in as players, I've started to do that more and more with casters that are going against you. Like, hey, you see them casting a spell, circling magical energy, arcane blackness coming from their hands. Do you want to counterspell? Oh, it was a chill touch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's just that's that's an important balance thing. And I think that, again, that you're you're right on in the point of if it's not fun for the players, it's not going to be as fun for the DM. And it's just it's not as yeah. good a time. Again, go back to my as, as much as I haven't done one of these on my actual philosophy, but I have said it to me. Successful tabletop RPG play takes place when the game master and the players all had fun at a session. Doesn't matter what it looked like. You could have had no combat. It could have had only combat. Could have been a war game. Could have been uh character shaving a troll's chest hair i will never have that image out of my mind rachel i've tried um but you know like they have fun that that's it that's amazing and that story sounds amazing like i would have loved that um 
So, any creatures you feel are underutilized by the wider D&D community or overused? I don't know that there's necessarily a creature that is over or underused just sort of qua itself, but I would say that there's a lot of creatures that slot into um, roles that that I wish people would have a little more variety with. Like, as per the comment of like, okay, uh, and I think Lena's made this comment before of, okay, we're level one. Uh, it's going to be kobolds, gnolls, or skeletons. And it's like, yeah, that, and that's that's fine. That's fair. I actually tend to use humanoid NPC characters at that level, like some good old-fashioned bandits or something. But um, I, I like trying to... I, I, I think it's worth taking the effort to try to use those characters in a more interesting way, or those creatures in a more interesting way. That's what I would say. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's funny. I... 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 And this is again very uh, again uh, all of our advice. I think mostly is is for here's what we think our play style is. Mm-hmm. So so like in in my world of Banya, I don't necessarily have a lot of like illithid just roaming around. Like the one you've come across was sort of outcast from their society. They're there. They're just there's a very good reason why they don't interact with like adventurers, you know, or would stay away from that. So like, sometimes, sometimes I think like, uh, those can get really overused if they're just sort of like out in everyday sort of life. But again, that's only my world. If you have a world in which, no, there are illithid like running towns for farms <laughs> or something or, or as protectors you know, or as or protectors or, or yeah, for whatever world that that is that explains them more often. Um, yeah. I just, uh, especially the more, the higher you get up in levels and the, the like more deadly creatures you face, I feel like, you know, generally those need to be kind of rare. I'm never going to have a beholder attack a caravan just on the side of the road you know like even if they're like level 20 i'm not gonna go and the bandit is a beholder because that just that's way too common of a random instance to a certain extent yeah Uh, so yeah that's the only time i think i would say anything gets overused is when something when something that it should for some purpose in your world be very rare becomes very common Mm, for some yeah 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 yeah. if that That makes a lot of sense um, trying to see. Uh, we've, I'll hear you too. Yeah, I'll think about that while you answer. We've uh, we've established that everything can be made into a monster swarm. Um, there have been some truly horrifying suggestions in chat. Admittedly, some of the most horrifying from me: ancient silver dragon swarm. Um, <laughs> you do not want to see what that thing's attack list looks like. Oh, rust monsters! That's another one that I'm just like. I hate to throw that at my people like every once in a while just to be like, Ooh, yeah, just, but man, they're nasty things that just set the party back more than, (laughs) more than are fun to fight. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's seeing a little bit there, like just in the, in the chat, I definitely like, and anyone who's seen um, any of our play in tier knows that like, I'm, I'm very explicit. There's 
all races are there. They're part of sort of society generally. So it's not as human elf dwarf focused um, within my world. Um, generally, because I agree, it's a little bit uninteresting. And I also... I'm not sure how I can speak to this within the general usage, but I do, I will say I do like uh, sort of agreeing with uh, Corey there. I like using humans or we've gone back, we've looped back to the discussion we've had earlier, the sort of stereotypically heroic races as villains. Um, I like a good Asmar villain. Um, there was one encounter y'all totally bypassed. Um, <laughs> And I, I like, you know, having just like, yeah, this is this is a dwarf. This looks very much like the merchant you were just talking to. They're evil. They're like really, really evil. Um, and sort of just getting that of no, the beasties in the world usually and I, I'd say that this was generally true. I'm trying to think back over sort of tier beyond the doors. Yeah. I would say the only like really bad things you found were people or the the result of people like yeah. you fought some more monstrous enemies but they weren't like bad they were just hungry and yeah you needed to kill them but they weren't like evil much like sweet pea you know manticore's gotta eat yeah. people yeah i i had a whole campaign setting where high elves who are traditionally very good and you know astute were just so above everyone else that they just tried to enslave the entire world. And you let like, me play a good high elf. And you played then a good high elf. Who was sort of disgusted by this and by the loss of what what he viewed as the loss of way. By the way, this was Lucian, who my first ever session of D&D 5e, the party tried to kill me. Yeah. It was fun. It was good times. <laughs> I was a little terrified. Welcome to D&D. Um, yeah. Let's see... So uh, the first sort of few were just sort of uh, almost like trivia about monsters or just our sort of personal opinions about monsters. And I, I try to roughly order these into into a flow. So Rachel in Discord um, asked, and this is more a turn into DMing with monsters and encounter creation. How do we decide which characters or which creatures to use? Is it based on terrain, CR, storytelling, etc.? Do you build your story around wanting to use certain interesting creatures or just inserts and just insert whatever fits best numbers wise? Yeah, do you take the first pass on this one? Right. Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, and and so my sort of uh, workflow with that is um, the very very first thing I tend to do is I hop on roll twenty. I head over to the monsters section sometimes if I'm trying to think of an encounter or build an encounter, um, and then I start filtering for challenge ratings. Uh, and just go, what even are my the possibilities with something at like a challenge rating five? Like, what even is there? And then you start kind of looking through, maybe see like, ooh, that might be interesting, a couple of those, or maybe one of those as a boss. Um, so I, I do tend to build my encounters starting with numbers, fitting interesting creatures into those numbers, and then allowing the story to unfold after that right so if i'm like ooh, honestly that's what happened with the oni which is here's what i want i want something that is going to be outside their challenge rating right now 
So that's going to be something at a five is a little outside their their you know their skillability right now. Yeah, it's but not an ancient silver dragon, dragon not a party wipe necessarily, but right. <laughs> yeah. like something that's just yeah, just outside. Uh, I always almost honestly for faith for fates of Rin, most of the encounters I do are deadly, um, which which means it's toward the top end of what they can handle. Um, I can only do that because I know my players are good enough at this game to be able to be okay with this. Like I know, you know, there, there's a, I've talked about this a little bit before, but there's a little bit of a safety net with Galway. If he's a healer, I know he's not going to blow all of his healing, just trying to get someone up to max <laughs> or something like that. I know that he'll save some healing for when Cryon goes down. <laughs> I, I just know that about him. And so I can, I can have the the encounter be a little bit more deadly or, or risk-taking. And we'll talk about exactly how to tweak that, I think, a little bit later, too. But but that's how I start my encounters. Um, so, so, yeah, with the Oni, I wanted something that could change shape because I wanted this to be a mystery that, that players solve. And I wanted something challenge rating around five or so, which is just outside. And the Oni kind of fit in really nicely in both of those areas. Um, and, and so then I'm like, cool, that's my creature. How now does it fit into the world? Does it fit into the greater story? Is this just a random one-off event? Um, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I go about it. I tend to do the numbers first and then see, then build the story around what fits those numbers. If yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, this is actually, I'd say, a, a sort of an interesting one. This also incidentally addresses a, a question uh, that Sam had asked in Discord of the SDMs. Do you find the scenario dictates the creatures or the creatures dictate the scenario a little bit? So it's like that one, you're the scenario dictates the creatures, but it's fitting the number and sort of slotting that in. And then you build more story out around it. Um, yeah. I'd say this is kind of interesting because I, I do, I would say, come at it from the other angle of... I would say the first thing that I try to determine is what is this encounter or why am I using these creatures? Um, I'm going to use tier beyond the doors as another example. Uh, when you were out in the blighted lands and you came across a couple of manticores, manticores? Yeah. manticores. Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted you to have a fight. I knew I wanted it to be a, sort of a medium to a hard, like nothing sort of deadly, just gets you all a little combat you hadn't fought in a little bit. I'm like, hey, do you guys remember your abilities? Let's just sort of get you some practice with this. Um, and I wanted it to be a monstrosity, and this kind of goes to what Rachel was saying. There, it was kind of the terrain. Um, where you were, I thought of the Blighted Lands as having lots of monstrosities. So I was like, oh, what's interesting in about this range in this terrain? I can, you know, I could grab more of them if they were lower or fewer of them if they were higher in this case it can out to be um two manticores um so that's that and that's kind of how i tend to build a more not i don't want to say throwaway, but where the encounter is sort of the point of the encounter uh, also looking at tier the run of skeletons in that was absolutely a story choice um I knew that I wanted the big bad in that to be using a skeletal army for story reasons, which you all finally got to in the finale, um, which I won't say, but 
that I, I wanted that flavor. I wanted to get to use those. I wanted to get to sort of get to play with some of those. And I will say that that posed some challenges because uh, I also, I, I didn't want zombies. I wanted skeletons. There's not a lot in the skeleton, the bone daddy family um, inside the basic sort of monster manual. So I actually homebrewed a couple of things. Used and then used a couple of not Wizards of the Coast uh, supplements. Cobalt Press uh, has a couple of monster guides that I used and then actually reflavored some of them to get that kind of uh, power scaling and power range and ability range that I wanted from those. So I would say that um, terrain is usually important for me because I want to make sure it makes sense. I absolutely do check the CR, though I have also tweaked creatures up or down because I'm just like, yeah, nah, I want them to fight this. Uh, yeah, you no longer have multi-attack. There, you don't murder them now. Um yeah. and story is also super important. I don't think I have ever quite built my story around wanting to use interesting creatures. Um I've if I was going to do that, it would almost have to be a one-shot, and my one-shots are so rarely highly combat focused that that would be weird for me. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I, I, and, and I totally agree. Like. Like. And it, it, it. Like as much as I think it would be fun, if if my four. You know, sixteenth level characters, all decked out with magic items, as even though it, it might fit the story for like a small group of goblins to try to go against them. I, I have to understand that's not going to be a tough fight or a long lasting fight or that, or, you know, that interesting in the combat itself. So if I really wanted the story to go in that direction, that small group of goblins has to be doing something else entirely. It's not just the fact that they exist in this world and need to be snuffed out anymore. It's, oh, these goblins have giant explosive things on their back that even though you kill them easily, then they blow up or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so the challenge rating for me, for a lot of them, does need to, does need to kind of match with where the players are at some point. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is kind of why I tend to frame that first, so I can kind of see what's out there around what I want to use to a certain extent. Yeah. And there's a, a really great, um, the Don John encounter um, builder, the encounter calculator is really great because it gives you definite challenge ratings, but also multiple creatures at different challenge ratings. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, your group, it could be, it could beat a challenge rating 12 at this point, um, which I think is around where the fates of Rin group is a challenge rating 12. But that's one creature at 12. You could do three challenge rating nines, five challenge rating eights, you know, 12 challenge rating fives or something like that. Um, and, and that's a, and it does give you a nice way to kind of mix and match a lot of times with that sort of stuff, um, especially when there's like a really big sort of encounter coming out or, or something like that. Kobold Fight Club is another good uh, resource for that. Um, yeah. the, the first rule that's of Kobold it. Fight Club is yip, yip. Um, 
uh, it's actually one of the reasons that I particularly like it for some of the stuff that I was describing is that you can pick a specific, you can, you define your party and then you can pick a specific monster and it shows you where that falls and how much more room you have. So sometimes yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, I want to give them a deadly encounter or even a little bit above it. This is a boss fight. This yeah. is my boss creature. That is a hard encounter. All right, let's add these two ads and this one. That's now deadly. Uh, gonna push it just a little past there because I also want this in there. Oh, it's now bright red and warning me that I'm going to obliterate my party. Maybe I dial it back, remove one of those other ads because I really want this other ad for flavor. Um, so that's another tool that you can use to play with that. Nice, nice, yeah. Um, so, uh, Tibi Taboo, are there any creatures you avoid using? Uh, mine goes back to my dislike. I try to avoid using things that are going to uninterestingly limit what the characters can do. Um, I, I certainly believe in uh, challenging my players, giving them difficult combats, uh, giving them threatening combats, but I also believe that most people have more fun in D&D when they like get to do the stuff that they're really good at and have that be impactful. So I tend to avoid using creatures that limit that. I also, and this is a thing that I've said to my players, I rarely create a combat encounter. It's pretty rare for me where there is no opportunity to do something that is not a traditional combat action in order to gain an advantage or resolve the fight. In my fights, you can almost always negotiate if the creatures are sentient. You can almost always distract them. You can always almost always use an environmental feature to get away. You can always sort of do these kinds of things. And so I would say the second is I would lean away from any creatures that prevent that in any part of that. Yeah. Yep, that can be, yeah, rough. <clears throat> and and um, I, th I think, too, I would be much more in a much longer campaign it sometimes is i think fun to to have like oh hakardi's going to really super shine in this like yeah this might not be amazing for burbage <laughs> in this fight yeah 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 absolutely going to do great that only works in longer campaigns when the next fight might be burbage's you know and a little bit less on hakari or something like that and you should be intentional oh. about it I would say right, yeah. As long as you're, as long as you understand where that balance is with letting your characters feel amazing, sometimes I, I'm okay sometimes with them. Yeah, with with every once in a while, only only like one or two of them in a in a fight, kind of having a having a hard time or something like that. Um, yeah, which is interesting, but but again, yeah, for like one shots or s shorter campaigns, um, I I. I, I sort of break that rule then a lot and try to as much as I can, everyone to feel, to feel uh, amazing and powerful kind of all the time. Yeah. Um, or at least uh, deadly, you know, sometimes effective. just barely make it out of there, but effective. Yeah. That's a really good word for it. Effective. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's, 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 that's one of those things that I still remember the, for example, the first time you threw a Rakshasa at us, it made sense. And it was a lot of fun because I'm not sure if people, Know this, Rakshasas are immune to the effects of spell below 6th level. God damn, did our bard try every freaking trick he knew, because we didn't know it was a Rakshasa yet, to yeah. get this person to stop. That's in fact how we first knew that something was up, because our bard also loved casting friends on people. 
and then nearly getting assaulted when they turned hostile. And at some point later, my character noticed, like, he wasn't affected at all. He was faking it. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking scary. Not only, <laughs> not only was this NPC not affected by this spell, he knew what we were doing and pretended to be. Oh, crap. Um, and so that I would say that that was a good example. We had a tough fight, etc. But it's also not like... If you've got a couple of casters in your party, don't just do a random Rakshasa encounter unless they're pretty high level, because your casters are going to do fuck all for that encounter. Like, they have, unless they've got buff spells, they're not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, that's all the stuff you just kind of have to have in the back of your head, yeah. too, as you're throwing these things at your characters. Like, I know it's a lot of work, but yeah, no... No, the last time charity blew out, <laughs> you know, just like went uh, went ham on on something and was able to just be super effective. No, the last time Burbage felt like he couldn't do much, uh, and you try to balance as best you can. Yeah. Um, it's also, uh, you know, it, it can it can flip on the other side where you just feel because you don't want to feel overpowered either. You don't want to feel you know yet like you're a god in this world. You want there to be a challenge, yeah. you know, at the same time. And so, yeah, it's 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 hard um, to kind of keep all these things straight sometimes, but but it tends to be really effective when you can, if you can, you know. And, and I would say that I try to, and I think occasionally we have some slight differences of approach there, but we, we agree on the overall goal. And I would say that one of the ways for me that isn't just the math is I always try to lead with story. And have that perspective of, oh, when was the last time that Rook got to just fucking barbecue something? When was the last time that, you know, and occasionally this does run into some things like I mentioned Tyr. The party ended up with just shit tons, metric shit tons of magical bludgeoning damage in a campaign where the enemies were primarily skeletons. And I'm like, oh, my poor little skeleton boys, you are not long for this world, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. Like... I, I, yeah. I made some encounters genuinely harder because I'm like, okay, you guys are just hitting their vulnerability. There's more of them. You can put them down. It's still a rough encounter. And then when we got to the end and you just kind of erased purple bone daddy, I was like, bye. <laughs> this was, this was what you were meant to be. That was interesting too, because I had started to build Rook with necromatic damage almost entirely. <laughs> yeah, And then when I'm like, this is interesting. It looks like the kind of main bad guys are going to be undead. Whoops. Uh, and not that, that was a bad choice on my part. Whatever. This, it was also fun to, to, to go, cool, how can I now adapt to this? And for Galway, yeah, how can I give India an encounter that lets him do some necromantic damage every once in a while? Yeah, and um, I think... Yeah, and I think yeah. that there's... Yeah, it's just that, yeah, you have some things where you can do that, and also just places where... You're a, one, you're a very, very good player, but also where Rook, who was learning and growing, sort of started to see the edges of what he could do. Like, Giant Elephant Monk continuously was very helpful for you all. I will say I did have at one point, especially when um, the TJ who was playing a paladin had to drop from the campaign. I was like, oh, fuck, this is now a bard, a sorcerer, a druid and a monk. Mm <laughs> hmm. Forget traditional tank. We're almost avoiding a traditional frontliner. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. we need to think about this. 
Yeah, and I'm sure that went into your creature yeah. counter building aspects of of well, shit. We you know you can't just brawl with a giant. <laughs> yeah, much no, as, like you know, I, think I, had, I think I had a troll encounter that was supposed to be in there at some point, and I was like, eh, yeah, uh, it needs to start a little farther away. <laughs> yeah, you guys are not strong. Um. All right, so this was kind of a double question because they seem to sort of flow together um, really yeah. uh, nicely. Uh, Monty asked, what is your process for balancing an encounter both before the encounter as you're planning it and during the encounter as things are going? And Rachel asked, um, do you edit your encounters on the fly? Make your creature do less damage, have fewer HP, anything of the like? Uh, is it harder to do that with players who know a lot or viewers who know a lot? That's really, yeah, that's really good. Um yeah, I mean, I have I have totally an answer for this because this definitely happens a lot. Um, yes, <laughs> to kind of <laughs> yes, yeah the 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 pre encounter building that for me that goes into it uh, does involve kind of a lot of math to make sure that everything sort of fits into that for Fates of Ren again specifically that deadly kind of range. Um, however. Uh, I, I I definitely then tweak my encounters like like all I was kind of saying in order to ooh but I really want this aspect in that or or oh man it would be great if that creature could be here right now, um, and so and so there are a lot of ways that you can sort of pre-establish some things to do during combat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. One of them, uh, one of them, which which is uh, the staggered the staggered entrance encounter. Which is you have a, a, a the math says that you might be able to take four giants, right? But that's theoretically at once. So if you were to have two enter at once, while three more will eventually come in, then at some point, you can you can give yourself a little bit of wiggle room. Um, which means I can. They're going to fight five giants, which is going to be a little bit above their pay grade, but they're going to do it in a way where they can focus two at once and then three, and that should then fit into that that category a little bit more. It 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 for one, it makes it feel like the encounter kind of evolves, and that the characters, um, while feeling very powerful at one point and then all of a sudden sort of dip down like oh shit there's three more of them and then can overcome those that that gives your encounter ups and downs and flow to them rather than simply rather than simply again if you have a player that knows the game well enough uh ooh, here are two manticores at once i got this i got that you got that easy yeah we can beat this no problem at all um, but when you can build a little bit of that evolving encounter into it prior to the encounter, then then you can kind of shape it a, a tiny bit. Um, I I rarely nerf or or exceed encounters during the encounter. Um, mostly mostly because when I started to do that when I was first starting out as a DM, I the feeling I had was almost always wrong. <laughs> the feeling I got was probably the same one that my players got at first, which was, oh shit, this is tough. And if it's tough, I need to nerf these guys quickly so that they don't have to kill them with as many powers or whatever. And and 
I first started to notice that when I did that, then all of a sudden they easily beat the encounter. And, and because I wasn't really trusting my preparation, I was just worried <laughs> that my players couldn't do it. Um, but once I started to kind of trust the, the process and trust the kind of randomness that can go in, the creatures themselves, I've, I've, I've pretty much then stuck to whatever I prepared is kind of what happened in, in the encounter. Um, this means sometimes, honestly, they, they do beat the encounter easily. And just because they got good roles and they did some awesome stuff and they charmed one of the, you know, one of the giants, whatever they, they got it because that's just how the dice fall. That also then means that it gets really close sometimes too. Um, and, and I, I'm generally pretty okay with that. There are certainly some things that you can do if you're, if you accidentally build an encounter that just breaks them. Um, because maybe the thief didn't know how hard this encounter was and started to like do magic tricks to try to <laughs> distract them or something like that. Uh, and you're like, Oh crap. The, nope. I, I, oops. <laughs> I, I should not now remove think... your face. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> um, yes, there, there then can be some wiggle room. Um, I, I don't really change stats of my creatures, but you can affect behavior of your creatures in order to make them do something smart or something dumb. That's how mostly then I affect how intense the encounter goes. Not so much making it easier to hit them or making them power down with hit points or, or damage during the fight. Um, but I can make it so that the thief got a really good attack on his friend. He's now leaving <laughs> so he doesn't care about the rest of them he's going to bolt and that's going to give you the players a second to do some opportunity attacks as he bolts it's going to then give them a little bit of space and then it's going to give them a chance to kind of regroup this is now all of a sudden a much easier fight than the oh shit that i just broke my players um kobolds can be super dangerous when they act incredibly smart and work together yep, yep, yep. and then they can be a lot easier when they don't yeah you know the behavior is the thing i am much more apt to change um rather than, rather than not kind of trusting the preparation sort of that i do if that makes sense yeah and, and i don't i don't and this is this is me this is you, there's nothing wrong with going oh shit i made this guy too hard let's cut his sit points in half that's fine you can totally do that I just tend to not. I tend to, I tend to trust the dice to make a weird, crazy thing happen. Yeah. <laughs> At the same, I yeah. think that the other thing that the, that we are saying there is, um, and I think I'll, I'll agree with this, and I'll expand on it, is that you absolutely go in with a plan. And I kind of think of the the boxing quote of everyone's got a plan until the first time they get hit. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and and so that yeah, you can you can see that plan through, but. Maybe it doesn't come in the form of doing less damage, having fewer HP, but you are applying some levers of like, oh shit, uh, this wasn't what I thought. I would also say that there is, in editing encounters on the fly, and a thing that I wanted to highlight, because you and I had had a conversation about this, is that there's the planning for an encounter that occurs before the session, and then there's the planning for the encounter that occurs right as that encounter is starting. 
Like you balance the encounter for four people who were relatively rested. Oh shit. These two weird things happen. Now there's three of them. One of them is split off and they haven't had a rest in two days. Yes, I've got something right. different now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that there I could see doing a little bit more. I would say that the biggest thing that I do in terms of editing encounters on the fly, I mostly follow the same thing that Andy does. Um, I try to, I try to mostly control it through behavior. Um, I am a little bit partial to having having what I like to term sort of the gut punch of, ah, you, things have been going really well. The monster hasn't been rolling well. I rarely fudge dice rolls so that someone hits. But for example, and this is again in that behavior tweak, and here I'm thinking of, again, Tear Beyond the Doors. I had a lot of spells uh, that, those, that that final boss fight could use. I decided to use Lightning Bolt because I'm like, no, if I'm trying to be true to these NPCs as characters, if they're pushed right up against the wall, they're going to use some very bad, very high-level magic, and if that comes out of nowhere to you guys, that's not going to be satisfying. The fact that Rook is now lightly toasted is a <laughs> warning to you. These are not people to fuck around with. You need to be ready. You need to be taking them seriously, and they're magical. Just in case there was any doubt, this probably isn't a, oh, I need to figure out how to get past the suit of plate armor. This is bad magic is coming your way. And so I do like to have, if it's if the dice have just been not really cooperating, I prefer to get to like sort of 70% intensity before the monster should realistically hit 100% intensity. Um so I would say that the, I do actually not, I won't say relatively frequently, but from time to time end up adjusting the monster to have less HP. It is, I think it's only been like once in the past couple of years has it been to help the party in the sense of I think the combat was too hard. It's the fact that D&D does often have a, a tail to combat. You have beaten the ads, you are wailing on this poor son bitch, but he still has 60 HP. It's going to be another two rounds before you put him down. The combat is... <laughs> I'm like, as opposed to just watching people punch this thing for like another 40 minutes in real time, I'm sort of like, yeah, maybe he had fewer HP left. <laughs> He's beaten. Yeah. But that's more just a housekeeping of... I'd rather get to do the cool stuff that comes after the fight than it is a I'm worried about the balance or I'm scared. It's just like, yeah, it, great. You're hitting him. He's dying. We um, <laughs> because the, the, the slow bayoneting of the survivors of D&D combat is not super interesting, at least to me. And I don't think to most players. Um, yeah. So I try to make it more of a cinematic moment or something like that. Yeah, um, like there, there are certainly yeah times when you're like, oh, they figured out the trick of this encounter. You know, put your 200 hit point tank barbarian who's raging and dodging constantly in a in a, in the hallway so that the monster can't get by them, and then just pick away very slowly at their hit points from the archer. Like, yes, that's a very safe then way to play that. And then if you if that's the trick of the encounter, cool, you've figured it out. Let's not. I, I totally get that. Let's I not spend forty five minutes. Proving that you figured it out. <laughs> five damage at a time. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Something like that. I, I think, yeah, I would totally agree. I'd probably, mm. I'd probably, yeah, 
cut that short somehow. Yeah, that, that's just a let's let's just um, yeah, yeah. but that's not so much a oh shit, I think they're gonna die, so I'm gonna nerf everyone. Um I think that the other thing that's really important for me is that even aside from challenge rating ratings or anything like that, um all of my combats, I want to serve a purpose inside the narrative, and I want them to have a feel. A hard combat, I want to be hard. I'm going to trust myself longer, and I might even, say, buff the second wave of that staggered encounter. Because I'm like, oh, you figured it out. But like for the story, this one should feel a little tricky. And I'm not going to deny player agency of you figured it out. Most fights, I'm like, yeah, you figured it out. But it needs to be demonstrated that this was a thing you figured out. That's also kind of where I like the let the villain get in one of those good attacks that the team did a really good job of preventing going through. And then you're suddenly like, oh, shit, if he had been hitting us this whole time, one or more of us would have been down. Like, because I still remember in, again, tier where it was just like that lightning bolt came out and you guys were suddenly like, oh, crap. Oh, Oh dear. Oh, this is going to do bad, hurtful things to us, I see. Um So I think that that's again, that's just a, but it's 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 all in the service of not just like killing the party or not killing the party, but making sure they get the right sort of feel and reward off of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How does yeah. and this is actually interesting because we've talked about this a little bit. Monty asks, how does prepping encounters for a one shot differ from prepping for a campaign? Yeah, interesting. Um Go for it. D&D is a magical game in which three months can go by in five seconds in the real world, uh, and 35 seconds of combat will take you four hours. If you are doing a one-shot, I think you need to almost perversely pay more attention to your combat encounter because in some ways it's like oh well it's a one shot so if the characters die or blah 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 it's not as big a deal but on the other hand it's like okay how much combat do you want to happen in that one shot. Um, I'm usually really intentional with my encounters, really limiting in the number of them because every encounter has the chance to turn into that's the next 40 minutes of play. If you're playing it for four hours once, that's like a fifth of the encounter just got spent there. <laughs> um, so I, I, I try to be really, really cautious with that and try to make sure that one, they're really flavorful Two, they almost always have a gimmick in my one-shots. There's almost always a gimmick in the combat uh, because I think it's more fun. And then three, that there's not too many of them. Don't you don't need to f- uh, you don't need to fill out the 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 sort of chimera manticore. Uh, you you haven't had a fight in three weeks. Let's let's give you something to beat up because you're about to go into a big fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because. With one-shots or really short campaigns, that sort of uh, boss of the conflict, whatever that may be, should get resolved at some point fairly quickly and stuff. Whereas in a campaign, we didn't even discover the big bad until season two (laughs) of of Fates of Rin, of like 70 sessions into season two, or 70 sessions into the campaign. We weren't even thinking necessarily that it's, oh, it's maybe Galway was, because Galway can read me, but it's, oh, it's going to be Behalit as the big bad of this thing. Um, so, so even though I have in my mind then how each of these little encounters or small bosses along the way react to the big thing, 
like, oh, you know, this could be a very interesting, like, side quest for charity that someone was trying to kill him. Oh, 70, 70 sessions later, there's a reason someone's trying to kill him. <laughs> there's a reason all of a sudden that maybe that random poisoner at the very beginning of, of the campaign might have had... Uh, might have been told by someone to take, make sure you take out charity. And I think like that, when that was your level, that was your session zero where all that even started yeah. um, for Galway. So like, so like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it feels very different to me when, when trying to make those things happen in different ways. And like the other things we've said, uh, but you know, uh, 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 you know, Stormbringer hasn't been able to just shine lately. So let's make sure that we get something for that uh, in this next encounter. Besides stuff like that, I'm very thoroughly engaged with how does this encounter fit into the much larger world, um, or is it just kind of a random cool thing that happens? Like honestly, the the mimic ship. Mimic there's probably ship. not. A- <laughs> There's probably not a deeper meaning necessarily to all of that, other than this is a really, really cool fight <laughs> that, I, that I want my players to have, have fun with and and yeah, feel powerful with and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so but yeah, many, it feels it does it feels different. So many dick jokes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and that's I would say that the thing that I one other thing that I would hit back to on that is with one shots, I also think it's a little easier to have a gimmick. Because the players can find the gimmick and then they get the reward. And yeah. I realize I'm making this sound very much like pull the lever, get the cookie. But it kind of is for the like, I wouldn't want a recurring boss to have an obvious gimmick. It's not satisfying, right? Like, oh, we solved him. The next time we see him, we're just, we've solved him. Unless you really intentionally play with that narrative. Not hinting that I'm going to do that at any point. No one here who's playing Moon Tree, pay attention to this. It's fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but for example, in the Amber Heart Mystery, both the Amber Heart Mystery and uh, um, the Raging Storm, the two tier one shots, the boss fights had very distinct gimmicks, and I really, really enjoyed those. And I love the fact that, like, I, and I, I prodded them just a little bit, but like, the group was like, oh shit, in Amber Heart, like, the, if we hit the crystal, something happens. Yeah. Every attack after that was like, we're going to wail on the crystal. <laughs> it's like, interesting. Um, so, so, so I'd say that's one other thing that varies, but really it has to be how is that serving your single, uh, y- your, your brief time together at the table. How do you make your encounters interesting? Sure, you can find a CR that matches up with your party, but do you? How do you balance interesting creatures, interesting mechanics, high stakes, etc.? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I I like to again kind of add that evolving nature sometimes to bigger fights. Um, whether it's like the beast's final form comes out, or you know halfway through its hit points, or whether it's the the uh, staggered sort of entrance again of, of of creatures or 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 whether whether it tugs on the heartstrings sometimes of players or characters specifically, um, I, like uh, if, if for example I have no idea if this is 
I don't think this is really an example from a campaign, but like someone has a real interesting past with like werewolves and werebears and their whole family is aware of something except them. Like you better believe I'm going to throw a were tiger or something at that creature and that player at some point, uh, because it's, it's not just a creature necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's all about them as a, as a story um, or, you know, and whatever they do with that. Um, yeah, and that, and that just kind of goes back to my original, like, your creatures kind of need to be characters yeah. to a certain extent. And, and when you can think of them as that, they become sort of just interesting, just in general. Uh, uh, you know, like, the white, white tiger Chenik boy is all of a sudden a far more interesting Bad kitty. character now. Because he has just so much of the wrath of the family <laughs> on him, rather than you know, if if he came in earlier and they just you know fought him and killed him, and he was like, "No, I serve Bell. I don't know." Um, yeah, it's it's that's that's part of it. If you can get your characters emotionally engaged in what's going on in the fight, beyond just simply, "Cool, time to beat up a, a beat up a, a giant or something." But why am I having to beat up this giant? What are the giants' goals and dreams? What do they want out of this? Um, the Stormbringer story is going to get into giants. <laughs> That's why you seem to have giants on the mind. Um, I'm noticing a theme right now. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that that I think that that is very much. Uh, I would say I've I have a very similar approach to that of how to make a counter is interesting. I start with story. In my mind, if the encounter of it in of itself, the interaction, the fight, the whatever it is, and I also think it's important to encounters in D and D shouldn't be limited to fights. They should be challenges. They should be opportunities to interact with the world. If you have never written a social interaction encounter as a DM, I encourage you to don't think about hit points and all of this think about all of the checks that need to happen think about the people that they could influence who might help their check or give them advantage or be a necessary key that unless they've persuaded this person to say yeah i vouch for them they're not going to talk to this person and because i think that those encounters can be some of the most fun in the game but to speak more specifically to combat encounters here again if you're leading from story if you're or in your case you maybe not lead from story but you very quickly develop it and try to figure out and try to make those creatures be something more than here is a stat block for the players to kill then i think it helps automatically make it more interesting because it has to be right like this is something that is deep in the motivations of one of the characters one or more of the characters or this is just an inherently cool mechanic. Um, and that's where I would say that as much as I don't tweak creatures too much once we get into the fight, I will often tweak those stat blocks extensively before the fight. Like, you know what? I really want you guys to fight this. I think it fits really beautifully for the story. I think it'd be really interesting and has a really cool mechanic. Now, how do I get that mechanic and that story flavor without this murdering all of you? Or without people walking and being like, I push him over. We win. You know, like, it it, it needs to sort both ways. Um, But just getting that fit. Yeah, you, you, and and I think you can kind of go on the other side of, of it with, with mechanics or, or interesting uh, gimmicks as, as a good word, you, you don't want to put a hat on a hat generally. Yeah. 
you know, um, if that makes sense, hopefully that makes sense. You don't necessarily want too many gimmicks of completely different versions of something on, you know, like, Ooh, he has a magic sword that just automatically blocks everything for him. Cool. And he has magic boots that kick away spells or something like that. Those, each of those might be kind of an interesting mechanic and having them both on the same person or creature starts to kind of muddy some of the, the, interesting aspects of figuring out then how the fight might go or figuring out the tricks or gimmicks kind of along with it. Um, and, and yeah, it just, it, it can muddy the waters just a little bit of, of what is the purpose of this creature or character as a character, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I've been debating um, whether or not uh, how much of this I should say, because I, I, I keep referencing, cause I was really, really, Actually, pretty proud of the gimmick of uh, the the boss of the Amberheart mystery. I'm gonna leave it here. Of um, it was an Earth elemental, and I wanted them to fight something with an Earth elemental. The campaign had a lot to do with sort of that idea. Um, I gave it sort of a crystal in its chest, and it was actually two Earth elementals fused together, horrifyingly. Um, and that that gave it a buff to stats. I didn't quite make it two Earth Elementals, but it gave it sort of a buff to stats. Um, and the creature and the, the, the creatures, the creatures. Yep, the creatures. See, this is where I am. The players discovered that if they attacked the crystal, it seemed like it did more damage. And I did that explicitly as a way of like Earth Elementals are kind of beefy. They've got a lot of HP to get through, and it gave them a way to get through that. One, there was a hidden mechanic tied to that for how hard the crystal was to hit, and two. And I'm not going to go too far into this. If they had um, outright destroyed that crystal, which was a way of killing the creature, some bad things would have happened. It's like, yeah, you're, you're gambling a little bit. You're going to get an outcome from this, but it may not be fully what you want. Um, so I think that that's just that's another uh, interesting way of going about. Um. Rachel asks how vindictive we are. Uh, have you ever given your players encounters that you hadn't planned because they annoyed you or wouldn't move forward? How did you come up with those in the moment? Wouldn't move forward? I've, I've used creatures every once in a while to spur some action, I guess. But it's never out of like frustration. It's more out of, oh, they just don't know what to do. <laughs> or they don't know where to go. Or something like that. It's It's... Yeah, I've I've never quite gotten frustrated and been like, take this, yeah, deal with that, you know, kind of thing. Um, mostly because you know, if you're that frustrated, uh, I I would probably go to my players and go, guys, I'm kind of frustrated with how we're doing this or how we're using this mechanic or this seems op or something like that. Maybe let's work on a way to deal with that or not use that or something so much. Um, and I've done that like early on again in my, in my DMing, I accidentally kind of gave, uh, a very, very good magical item that I created to one of my players and, and they just sort of then used it all the time and it overpowered them. And then it wasn't super fun. Um, but, but I guess, yeah, while you could throw then a really, really powerful, crazy creature that would just nullify that, that's not quite as much fun, Mm -hmm. um, so if there's that frustration, I would I would say, cool, talk talk to them a little bit about the frustration, maybe before sending in 
thousand skeletons or something. Well, and it's interesting because Rachel gave some context for this. Uh, she asked this because her kid players were fighting with each other. So after half an hour, I made the creatures that they just defeated come back as zombies. And that's actually kind of an interesting take on this that I can see of like, yeah, y'all are just sitting around and also they're kids. So difficult to sort of have that conversation and like, let's just spur some action. I still remember early in that uh, first campaign that I played with you where we were debating as to like which route to go. It was like we could go by the sea or like by a road route. And there was this cave that we thought maybe had some treasure. And I remember at some point, like you just described, like as we were sitting there debating this and things were almost even getting like a little not quite heated between the players, but like there was frustration building. We don't know what to do. You're like, you see this lion up on the rock and it's this massive creature. And we're like, Oh, okay. They're like, and then these giant, like spider claw tentacles reach out of the cave and like suck the lion in. And you just hear like hissing. And I remember that all the players were like, I don't care which way we go, but we want to go. I don't want to be near this (laughs) cave. I don't want to be in the same (laughs) continent as this cave. What is the quickest way to be away from here? I don't care about where we're going. Um, so so I can see that, but that's not so much an encounter as just uh, happening. Um, and so I, I certainly don't think I have ever um, given a player an encounter because they annoyed me. Um, I think that I have given players encounters because they wouldn't move forward, but as much as they might have been uh, added in, they weren't they weren't to punish certainly it was a this is a consequence of this action if you spend three days in the town dithering over what to do next the world moves on (laughs) and there might be some other stuff and i do occasionally throw an encounter in as just like a hook of hey maybe this is this is more the right path um But outside of that, uh, yeah, I certainly have never vindictively used encounter. I think that that could, um, and from what Rachel's describing, that doesn't actually sound like a vindictive encounter. But I would say that uh, your advice is also very well taken. If you're frustrated with your players, especially adult players, let's, you know, assume we're not dealing with children as Rachel is here, which is a different context. Um, If you're that frustrated and that you're sort of acting in ways to punish with that frustration, you need to have a conversation because you're also slipping dangerously close to becoming DM as adversary, which is not where you want to be. You are not there to punish the players. Um, So, you know, that would be the other thing is like, I think that that's really good advice, Andy. If like, if you're feeling that to the point where you're motivated to do that, Maybe stop, pause the game. Have a conversation about this. Be like, guys, this is getting really aggravating. What can we do? Why are you not feeling like moving forward? Because it can mm-hmm. be dialogue with them too. Of like, why aren't you feel? Why aren't you moving forward? Have I not signaled to you what forward is? Mm-hmm. Um, because I've generally found that most players outside of Lena and you generally want to move forward and don't advocate for staying in the abandoned fortress for two years growing crops. It's fine. Fine. We were talked into it eventually. You know, yes. as a player, always, always, it's cool to to hint at derailing maybe the storyline a little bit, but always give your character outs and always give your character like let them be persuaded. If, if yes, yeah, you know, if it's if it's something your character you don't think your character would do necessarily, allow yourself to hear out the people who do want to do something. And, 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 you know, try to decide for yourself. And yeah, this is maybe my way to get back on track with the story or something like that. Um, yeah. And I think that that's another thing that, 
yeah. Another thing that we should uh, um, that we should highlight, sort of as a DMing tip, is foster those conversations. Because sometimes your your goal as a DM is going to be to foster the conversation between the players, either between each other or between the players and you. Of like, what does it take to move forward? Why is this sort of where your characters are? Like, oh, okay, I get how you're playing your character who doesn't want to do that. But that's, I would say, one of the best places to have a metagame discussion of just table talk between the players of like, okay, but we all can agree that we're supposed to go through this and to honor that character and honor that goals. But what could we say? <laughs> like, work with them to get something satisfying for that character. Um, Monty asks, how do we deal with bad luck in encounters? There have been no TPKs in helpful goat games, they think. Um, so how do you make sure your players don't die even when they technically should? Um, some of that goes into the balancing of the encounter and reacting to the bad dice rolls with some behavior that we've kind of talked about a little bit mm -hmm. so that you're not, you know, incredibly frustrating your players because Lena or not Lena necessarily, but Adam more likely is rolling ones constantly. <laughs> and and it just that. nice, just are off that night and just don't like you and you forgot to sacrifice a virgin goat to the, the gods. I get it. Um, so you can, you can react a little bit in, in the thing to that. Um, but again, the other part of it is sometimes uh, I don't think I've ever purposefully done anything that was going to kill everyone in a TPK and, and try to then prevent that necessarily. Um, we've, we've, uh, our little group wasn't, it wasn't, we weren't streaming at the time, but we've had one TPK with me as DM. Um, and that, and, and, and that goes well to, I think my play style of, of a TPK or a death and something is not the end of that character. The one time we had a TPK was, was, um, was in in one of the sort of pre-established um uh it, i think it was dragon's horde queen dragon queen of the dragon horde the horde, horde of the, of the dragon. dragon queen there we go like, the we had all the words in the right order and, and you know you just go into a camp and there are some really big bad nasty people in that camp oh, God. uh the, the the for some reason the game sort of imagined that you guys would stealthily just sort of not do much, try to sneak out and everything. And my group is like, no, we're going to kill everyone, which is cool, which is a totally interesting, bold choice to make. Um, and then it just ha sort of happened that the, the it was a little overpowered for them. Um, and the way we handled that TPK was, yeah, they all got knocked out and then woke up together captured, <laughs> you know, because everyone was about died, about died, and they all got to get, you know, they were saved by then the group that that wanted to question them later. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I, I I wouldn't necessarily steer away from from bad things happening like that sometimes. Um, if, if you know it's not going to be fun for your characters or something like that, that's kind of a different conversation you can have. Um, but that you know TPK can then also be a very interesting thing into cool now you've all been captured by the bad guy and yeah. now you all have to deal with this that 
I'm very much about in my games. Yes, your your actions absolutely have consequences, and if you take on a fight you can't win or something, there are some consequences to that. But it, it will not break the game. It really won't. It just means that there's a new hardship to come. Um, I, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in as long as the party can find some motivation to stay together, the, whatever happens in the game will happen and you know we'll we'll just make it work we'll make fun out of it whatever it is and if that means you were tpk'd and you all wake up in a jail then that's what happens um so yeah i so 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 maybe it's even a fundamental thing i don't think tpks should end the game necessarily um and i would feel really bad (laughs) asking every one of you to (laughs) to sort of listen to our podcast for 80 90 100 episodes of this of this thing if at any moment a bad dice roll could just completely wipe out the entire story i would i would feel icky sort of so you were interested in what charity's deal was too bad (laughs) (laughs) what's that i was like so you were interested in finding out what charity's deal really was too bad oh, he's yeah, gone yeah. now. Yeah, charity, charity done. That was yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's, there's a, there's a way back. Yeah, from even even if your character dies and it gets sent to hell, cool. Then a new adventure. Let's go to hell and get them back. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm all about the character death or something like that. Should be the end of it for the story, unless the player's like, you know what, I'm sick of this character, <laughs> or I'd like to play <laughs> with a new. Yeah, yeah. and let's, I think yeah, kill him off and let's try something else. Yeah, generally, generally, yeah, that's probably why there's not been any TPKs in Helpful Goat, uh, generally because we put a lot of work into balancing these things. The players are very, very good at the game. And, uh, yeah, it, it it's not something that happens that often. And I think that that's also... My, my, yeah. yeah, and I think that's also something that's aligned for us because a lot of times I think people get... Uh, fixated on this concept of TPK, but you know, the total party kill. Whereas what you tend to do, and I, and I agree with this, and I think it's a really strong mechanic is instead look at it as party defeat. The party has been defeated. You are captured. One or more of you may be dead or, but I would say like, it's a lot harder to come back from all of you are legitimately dead. No one's coming to rescue you, or maybe you get, like, someone is going to to, to roll, uh, maybe someone reses, but, you know, like, it, that could be harder to bring back, but certainly the bad things, the cool things, um, all of that can play much more if you just focus on, okay, well, does everyone here want to keep playing these characters, and do we want to come back from this? And like you were saying, guess what, guys? We now have a five-session side arc of going to hell. Um, yeah. yeah. Off we go. Or, yeah. Yeah, like I, I think I could probably sell it to my players at some point. Maybe not Fates are in, but whatever. Some some campaign where like, cool, you all died. You're all now ghosts looking for revenge. Like, <laughs> like let's give you a cool new mechanic and let's keep going. Like, as long as your players are having fun with what's going on, like there are. This is a weird, magical, crazy world. There's always ways out of it. Um, and if it makes a memorable moment. Maybe don't, yeah, don't, I think like Corey said, don't shy away from that necessarily. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's some, uh, I think Adam has said before too, it's sometimes the best story beat can be something really, really bad and traumatic. And that's, 
that's sometimes a little rough for your character at the moment. And it gives you such an opportunity to pull out from that, uh, which, which is awesome. So, so yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And also like, we're talking about creatures mostly here. I, I don't put traps in my games that could party wipe. (laughs) I know there are games that do that or could do that. That is a little rough for me because that comes down to like a single die roll mess up or something like that. And everyone's gone. Um, Yeah. I try to definitely build in. If dice are going to be bad, you have to be bad a bunch of times in order for this to be incredibly dangerous. And I think that 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 goes along with also the guide player behavior, the way you want it to go, or rather players are going to respond generally to what you put out there. If you play with a group of people and you wipe them from a trap, prepare for every dungeon exploration to take 12 hours because they're going to go five feet and check for traps. You have taught them. If you don't check for traps, you're fucked. So, and and sometimes I do see stuff like that on like D and D Reddit where they're like, well, my party's doing like X, Y, and Z where it was like, well, yeah. Okay. But, but what did you just do to them? Oh, they don't trust anyone because you just had someone be a shape changer who was the big bad. Well, no shit. Why did yeah. you think they were going to trust people next? And it's like, you can have fun with that. That can be good, but don't be frustrated when there's a logical response to what you've done. Yeah. Um, and I think, and you know, I, I, I would say I, I use traps maybe even a little more than you do, but, a little but bit, yeah. they don't tend to be awful in their consequences. I view them more as complications, and I don't use them that much because every 10 feet hearing the dice roll isn't amazing for anyone yeah um the only thing that i would say with bad luck and encounters and this this is again kind of one of those dming tips and it goes to this think about care um creature behavior think about adversary behavior think about how things are going if someone gets one of those bad lucks and gets dropped or crippled or you know locked out whatever it is be real cognizant of which of the characters it is. Because I'm not saying that there's different values, but there's different roles. So if the archer gets removed because they got knocked out early in the fight because of a, a crit hit, okay, that's that's something, and think about that. That's way different than the healer got knocked out on round one and there's no other healing in the party. Right, 100%, yeah. Like, I, I think I would have completely changed the whole return to cliff mill thing if charity was the absolutely only person that could bring anyone back to life, you know, like that, that all of a sudden is like, no, (laughs) that that changes things drastically. Cause at that point we're talking about much more permanent kinds of things. Yeah. Um, And then it makes sense. It's just, that's just one of the things that I'm always trying to, I try to be really cognizant of like reading and acting again, going back to the, um, the, the, the tier beyond the doors finale. I was really cognizant of who was unconscious and who was low on health. And it's like, your person who does the most healing is way fucking back in the other corner of the room, desperately trying to avoid straight lines. <laughs> I can keep pushing. I can keep pushing just fine. We're not pushing into, you're going to be dead. Um, uh, yeah. uh, Tippy 
in Discord asks, if we build an encounter with several of the same creature, do you vary their hit points and other details? I can answer this one quickly. Yes, I tend to. Um, I, I don't tweak them a ton. Uh, I would say that I usually go up or down by half the max value of their hit die. So like if they've got 3d6 and you know that normally means that they've got like 11 hit points because they take the exact half um a couple of them might have 13 a couple of them might have nine i think that it adds a little variety and a little bit of flavor and it keeps it makes it a little bit less okay i did 14 damage and it died so this one needs to i love that moment of wait shit i've done enough damage to him right right it's like yeah eh, he's still alive um Sometimes I'll vary other details. I actually did go through in tier and uh, for an encounter that the party actually didn't have. Um, I used a lot of knights and a lot of skeletons, but I actually outfit them differently. I tweaked their AC up and down a little bit because some of them were sort of captains. Some of them were just more standard troops. Skeletons, some of them were... Thresher? I don't know. Um... (laughs) Uh, so I do that a little bit, but it's nothing extreme. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, it, it, I, the, I, I don't tend to necessarily switch around a lot if I have multiple creatures, because most of the time when I have multiple creatures like that, they're they're kind of the minions. Mm-hmm. And they're not the important necessarily thing anyway. And and I my brain doesn't do very well <laughs> sometimes with pulling focus into different aspects. Um, and if if I'm if I'm trying to think of different HP for different people, uh, and what and sometimes why exactly that is, I agree it's a really cool thing to do. I personally get a little more anxious when I have to keep track of stuff like that. Um, so I don't tend to do it too much. Um, but if we had like two stone giants dancing around a crystal and there are no minions <laughs> and it's, those are the things you need to beat, Go on. they might, they might have individual personalities and because they are so much more character based, I'm totally cool. Yeah. Dealing with, Oh, this one has more hit points because of this. This one has less because of this, that sort of thing. If I were to be able to recognize the one that had less hit points, how might I do that? Um, actually thinner and, but, uh, yeah. So, so we, I don't think we take it too far and, and that makes total sense. Like I, I, I actually usually keep track of a lot of my encounter stuff, either in directly roll 20 on the tokens. So there's not as much overhead for me to think about or in a spreadsheet where I can see what each of them are. So I kind of just see those numbers and I tend to run it as a, Minus, okay, they hit for five, minus five. That one had five, that one had seven. They hit the first one, it's dead. Um, yeah. So there's not as much overhead in like my own brain of what am I taking care of. Um, but it, it can be interesting, but I don't go overboard with it because the, and I think that the biggest, the biggest thing and the biggest question that I ask myself whenever I'm doing this is one, I will do it a lot more if yes, they have personalities or these are actual characters, then <laughs> a lot more is on the board. I might start customizing spell lists if those are casters, or I might start, you know, tweaking their equipment a little bit to make it feel more like what I want that character to be. Um, but if it's just sort of the scrub minions and I'm throwing it in for some variety, I always try to also make sure in the back of my mind, 
does this still feel like the same creature? Like, not the exact same stat block, not 13 HP for all of them, but 13 HP to 15 HP? Sure, that's fine. That's, you know, maybe if it was a stronger attack, the 15 one would still go down the same number of attacks. 13 to 20? Too much. Like, especially at that level, like, you're talking about whole other rounds of attacks in order to bring it down. I don't want to do that. Um, so that's kind of my my rule of thumb. Um, yeah. We had a couple of late questions that came in. Yeah, it was a really good question. Um, uh, JSTEP asks in the Discord, how do you deal with monsters for high-level characters? Uh, they struggle with either a high CR creature that dies within one round, or a lot of moderate CR creatures that last just about as long. <clears throat> yeah, that's a really good question. And honestly, I, I don't feel super confident yet i've not dm'd a lot of really high level characters yet um i can tell you what i'm planning to do (laughs) is uh the they're yeah so so with something like fates of ren where they're getting into the high levels now um which i think you guys are like 12 13 ish right now um and we're planning to to go higher uh hopefully to 20 at some point if, if we can get there um it's it's going to be very very difficult to not then feel very godlike in, in in some instances um what i'm planning to do with creatures is to have a little bit more uh a little bit more attrition encounters um than they've been doing so far which which and all i mean by that is a few encounters that are kind of difficult but really take up a little bit of more resources so that I can get a, a few hit points off of them, I can u- make them use a few spell slots, and all of a sudden they're not overpowered for the boss kind of fight. They're more they're more powered where this is going to be an interesting fight. Finally, um, uh, so, so I don't mind doing a little bit more of of that. Um, rather than just simply, we walk into the boss's room and we are full hit points, full spell slots. We're going to wipe this guy out easily because at level uh, around level fifteen and above, there are there are fewer and fewer monsters that are going to serve a challenge just by being care being creatures. Um, but again, you can you can set up encounters in different ways to give them different. Uh, not, not necessarily changing stats or abilities necessarily, but 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 making things evolve, making things a little bit harder in the encounter itself, and and also you have a lot of leeway in how many sort of short rests and you give the players, uh, and and knowing what players are going to benefit the most from short rests, like if it's a barbarian, warlock, uh, fighter bard combo monk <laughs> monk yeah that would be an amazing short rest group that basically gets everything back <laughs> that they need on short rests um but if again yeah if it's like druid sorcerer like like uh McKeck some of these like uh, sleep now paladin, <laughs> yeah. these sort of things uh having fewer long rests then makes them a little bit that attrition really kind of takes a toll on them uh, so so yeah so so a little bit more of that getting involved in stuff um 
dictating a little bit more how many short rests are going to be involved. You can you can kind of make sure that they are feeling powerful and awesome and amazing while still having threat to them. Um, you you can kind of do those things without it eventually feeling unfair. Like, oh, before you go into the boss's room, you accidentally fall into a pit of acid that takes away everyone's half, half of their hit points. Yeah, I mean, wow, that just kind of feels really contrived. Yeah. yeah, and and you're trying to stay away from that because you we want to make sure everyone's having a good time um, and that sort of thing. Like, like yeah, like I, but it's a struggle, honestly, because I, I don't know if I'll ever get Stormbringer below 100 hit points again. <laughs> like I've been looking at a lot of the different like, characters and creatures I want to use and I don't know if Stormbringer will ever get up below 100 hit points now you know that's part of the challenge and part of the puzzle and part of the fun of thinking well cool well you know what is going to allow that to happen What? how can I make this fun and a little bit threatening at some point for Stormbringer still um, but it is it's a, it's a big challenge and, and I'm not quite a master of it yet because we have not done a lot of that at all yeah uh, I, I i would also certainly lead anything any remarks i'm about to say with the same caveat of i'm i'm by no means master of it i'm not well practiced with it i haven't done it a lot but i would say that i've thought about this a little bit and my philosophy of it um very similarly to andy's goes part of it is yeah uh balance helps um another thing that i would always say is um Remember the fundamental law of PCs versus NPCs slash creatures in Dungeons & Dragons 5e. Player characters do lots of damage and have very little health. Creatures have lots of health and don't do very much damage. That is the fundamental balance mechanic of the game there are resources online that you can look at that uh provide you guidelines of you can basically tell what challenge rating a creature is or if you know the challenge rating of a creature you can basically guess to within like one die or so how much hp it's going to have and what its attack damage output for a round will be that makes sense right those are the levers by which you generate difficulty in dnd 5e at a core sense so Given that, you want to keep that in mind, and that's also where you don't want to make um, combats just a slog, uh, to use a video gaming term. You do not want things to be bullet sponges. It's just not fun. Like the, Again, that's where I go to. Sometimes I reduce the HP because I'm like, you've, you've won. You've beaten this thing. I do not want to have you have to sit here and stab it with a knife for the next 45 minutes in order to kill it according to its stat blocks. Um, the other side of that is, and a thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, is not limiting players, but challenging players tactically with the circumstances of the room or the environment or through additional items and abilities that you put on it. It's not by giving it more HP because then you have the bullet sponge and it's not by giving it more damage. I will say one of the most dangerous things you can do in 5e is adding more damage to a creature. They're not supposed to hit hard 
with rare exceptions. Because if you do, you turn it into, that thing is lethal because it's just going to stand there and soak damage for six rounds, which none of you can do. Um, so be really cautious about that. But for example, uh, you got the high level party, you've got uh, evil wizards base, um, they are infiltrating and it's in a volcano. Uh, one, the floor is literally fucking lava. Um, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, again, to go back to Andy's point, it shouldn't just be, oh, they fall in the lava, half HP, now you go into the fight. Make them move around the room. Um, bits of flaming molten stone are splashing down from the ceiling. Um, you have to keep positioning. You can't necessarily take ideal position. Uh, obviously, a a standard thing also keep in mind where people want to be most marshals want to be close most casters want to be far the fuck away make it difficult for them to be that i don't mean do not let them be that or we're back to right. young andy's fighter going eh. <laughs> yeah at the thing on the ceiling but make it hard make it challenging um a fight that i've actually that i, I i've worked in my head several times but i've never actually done have a fight while like sliding down a mountainside. Your position is not fully yours to control unless you're expending effort. Which again means that the players can expend that effort, but then that means they can't do other things. So there's a trade-off, there's choices, there's tactics. That's another way that I would see adding it because yeah, you do get into this, um, I always refer to it as the Dragon Ball Z problem of by the time everyone can destroy the planet by sneezing, it's really hard to get balance because the only thing that you can fight them with is a thing that can destroy the universe by sneezing. And it's like mm -hmm. that arms race is usually not as satisfying. So maybe try to find outside things, outside limitations. One of my favorite encounters I ever ran for you guys, which was admittedly early level, but an example of these outside factors, um, they were infiltrating a city that had been attacked by creatures. Um, and they basically figured out pretty early on that if they were seen, the creatures were going to go raise the alarm. So there were their stakes, really bad things. And I remember because of that, I got one of you, I think it was you, Andy, to spend all of your spell slots on a random scrub encounter because you all kept missing and this guy was going to make it and go tell everyone else in the town and you knew that that was we have to retreat. So it was like, fuck it, magic missile at second level, that's my last spell slot there, he's dead. And it's like, there, I made you make a tactical choice. You yeah. can't do that in the in the actual big fight of this, but you really, 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 really needed to do it right then. And it was 100% the right choice. So that's yeah. another way that you can try to infuse a little bit into that. Um, because losing an encounter does not necessarily mean you lost a life. Or, or you've gotten to zero hit points. Um, you can make characters lose encounters lots of different ways. Um, and, and, that, and that, you know, just because a creature is incredibly fast or invisible or hard to see might make something happen that the characters don't want to have happen. And now there's a new complication here. Like, you're protecting a little girl, you're surrounding her, like the goal all of a sudden of this is not I need to kill them before they kill me. It's I need to kill them before they get to this little girl. Right. Or even more interestingly, I need to move them away from this little girl. A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. 
whatever works there there's there's lots of if you have a good dm there should be lots of ways to win or lose an encounter mm-hmm. that goes beyond just getting them to zero yeah to a certain extent yeah and that's uh, and that again goes to that play the story play the characters know what they yeah. care about know what they want uh, and i don't mean and then use it against them but i also kind of mean and then use it against them um yeah because that's where the motivation comes in um and know know what they're who you're playing with, know what they like, know what they want, know what the goal is. And again, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but I think it's because it's a pretty fundamental thing within DMing D and D and DMing GMing generally. Know the purpose that it serves. Like it, if you're, and it's weird because I'm about to say it is a perfectly legitimate thing to throw in in a combat encounter because. You just want to throw in a combat encounter? That's fine. I've done it. It it, it can be satisfying. Give them something to beat the crap out of. But that's the purpose of it. So then it should be just sort of a fun, maybe light combat encounter. Or is this meant to, you need to get this hostage out of here? Like, and you know, it's kind of in the same model that anyone was discussing, but it's like, yeah, uh, higher level characters become sort of demigods. The six-year-old that they're trying to rescue still has two HP if that you know and no armor class so sure time stop fixes a lot of things but um (laughs) and i think that the other thing that i would always that i I, a lot of these have come back to is it also depends if you've got a group of murder hobos they don't give a shit they probably shot the six-year-old themselves (laughs) if you're all good with that and you're having fun that's that's great if you're trying to yeah if you're trying to do something more story-based, that might be an indication that you have a mismatch between your players and you. Mm-hmm. Which we can talk about more in another uh, Goat Side View. Um, one last question that came in in the Discord, and then um, I think we'll wrap up for tonight. Uh, Corey asked, are there any characters you would absolute, absolutely, positively never, ever use? Creatures? Like like monsters? or uh, I assume or so. Characters, yeah. Creatures, I, would assume. I, might need, I might need a second. Actually, I do. I, I do have one, and it's and it's not at all because of the creatures. It's because of where my world is currently. Uh, I, I while while I love and find it really interesting for sort of the mechanized kind of steampunkish era that D&D has kind of evolved into since, like, advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I, my world isn't quite there yet, so the most advanced thing that we've seen is, like, puppets, basically, in my world. Like, things things that are kind of run by magic, but not really mechanical things yet. Uh, there Right now, there are no... Um, there are no warforged. Uh, there, there aren't a lot of constructs mm. built in that way. There, none of, no one has has played the sort of Eberron race of what is it called? Warforged. Warforged. Um, so, so I right now I'm saying that they just don't really exist. I, I'm looking forward to the point in my campaign where all of a sudden that is a thing, but my world just isn't quite there, and so I'm pulling. I'm keeping all of those creatures. Uh, hidden for now, or, or just in you know in my mind, I'm not super trying to 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 bring those out right now, and that's only because of a story choice. Yeah, 
I don't think there is a creature I would not put in because of the creature itself. I can't think of a reason I cannot imagine using them somehow. Yeah. yeah I, I'm trying to think the, it's not, it's not an element for absolutely positively never ever, but uh, yeah. I think that this does also go to, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but the thing that I could say where I'd be like, yep, yeah, nope, hard cancel, not having those, um, goes around consent in gaming and the conversations that we try to have with players. Sure. Of, if yeah. there was an absolute reason of, no, this will be harmful to a player just having this experience with this, I would never use one of those. Um, whatever that is. Like, I can't think of anything up the top of my head that is so bad or problematic that I look at that as like a universal of, cause I have, I have my own lines and veils for what I will and will not have in my campaigns, either for me DMing or me playing. But, um, I, I, I can't think of anything that's just automatically over that line which is not a huge surprise when wizards of the coast is you know a massive corporation with a very very well retained legal department um they're 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 not gonna they're not gonna put like oh yes um blind orphan creature (laughs) oh good oh good that's that's what i want um jesus yeah yeah. yeah and, and that's and that's but that's yeah. kind of where my brain went first right it's like i'm never going to present my players with a thing where i'm like you automatically must feel like a fucking monster if you take this thing out yeah yeah i can i can imagine maybe how a fundamentalist christian might have really deep held beliefs about like devils or something like that or demons and if someone like that is in your group yeah you might want to have that conversation maybe you don't use that but again, yeah, I, I totally agree. So I, 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 though I can't think of anything universally, yeah, yeah, I would do. It would only be specific to the story and or the party. Yeah. Players, yeah. All right. All of us here at Helpful Goat Gaming, have a wonderful evening. Be well, be safe, be kind to each other. Love you. Love you guys. Hang on. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to hear more, check out our main podcast feed, Goats and Dragons, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. You can also learn more about our shared gaming projects at our website, HelpfulGoat.com. Follow us on Twitch, Twitter, and Facebook at HelpfulGoat, and find us on YouTube by searching for Helpful Goat Gaming. And if you like what you hear, please do consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We are a small independent game design firm and would really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.